Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, and Happy Halloween. Uh, in the spirit of spirits, we'll take a walking tour of one of the great cemeteries in the United States, Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York, where more than 300,000 people do not live, including Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Herman Melville, F.W. Woolworth, Fiorella LaGuardia, Bat Masterson, and Joseph Pulitzer. But since we're science people, our focus is going to be on the geology, especially that of the rock used in the more than 1,300 opulent mausoleums to be found at Woodlawn Cemetery. And we'll get some culture, too. You'll hear the voice of Susan Olson. She was the executive director of the Friends of Woodlawn Cemetery when this was recorded. And you'll hear the geologist Sidney Horenstein. This tour actually took place in 2008, and I put up much of the audio for Halloween 10 years ago, but here's a slightly revised version, and now let's go hang out at a cemetery. The most prominent stone is the one you're standing on right here, and this is from Milford, Massachusetts. It's about 350 million years old, and you, you probably, all of you have seen it because it's the main entrance of the Museum of Natural History on Central Park West. It's the same stone. Unfortunately, there, they tried to clean it and uh, several years ago, and they used hydrofluoric acid to clean it, so it's bleached white. But it's beautiful pink uh, granite. Uh, if you want to see what the original color of the stone was at the museum, look at the benches. They didn't clean the benches. So those are the original green colored sheep. You can actually contrast it. So this is slate. Um, and slate is a metamorphic rock. So here's the whole transition that you may be familiar with. Uh, mud that forms on the seafloor eventually gets hardened to shale. When shale is subjected to heat and pressure, it becomes slate. When you then add more heat and pressure, it becomes phyllite, a rock that you don't see too often, um, that you may not be familiar with. And then when you add more heat and pressure to the phyllite, you get schist. And everybody's more or less familiar with the Manhattan schist. And then if you add more heat and pressure, it melts and becomes an igneous rock. One of the things that's astounding to me, though, is, of course, how so many of our wealthy New Yorkers decide to treat us, the little people, to their travels. And we do have a wealth of Egyptian things. Our Egyptian things traditionally date from around the time when they're excavating King Tut's tomb. Egyptomania hits New York. Everybody's crazy about it. And I remember in the 70s when King Tut toured and we all were wearing our little pharaoh earrings and that kind of thing. <laughs> Same thing, but this one, of course, dates 1916, a little bit earlier. Jules Bache, well known as a stockbroker, goes to Egypt and, of course, he's so inspired as he gets there that he decides to recreate his own tomb. Okay. So what is the tomb? It's the kiosk of Trajan. Here it is wow. in its setting. <laughs> That's its exact reproduction of it, except for one thing, which I'll explain to you in a moment. Um, this is no longer in the original spot it was uh, built in, it, because of the uh, Aswan Dam and the rising waters of the Nile, 
Uh, so it was moved. But it was the entryway into the um, into a temple complex. And uh, so here it is. And uh, so you see, what do you see? Uh, just a few of the motifs. You see up at the top, you see the vulture wings. That's the maternal aspects of life. The sun gives life. The snakes, the asps, uh, those a pair, death. See, and one of the reasons why Egyptian architecture was so important uh, in, in uh, cemeteries uh, is because of the fact that, uh, that it was so involved in, in death. So there's a lot of interesting motifs that are reproduced. Uh, there are uh, papyrus leaves also under, mixed in with the, um, uh, with the lotus, and those uh, represent, uh, uh, represent uh, knowledge and rebirth. So there are all kinds of symbolism that's involved in it. Now, the Egyptian revival architecture, there were three periods of Egyptian revival architecture. The first one occurred when Napoleon invaded Egypt. And it was a tremendous flurry of interest in that. And then there was another one in the 1840s and 1850s. And for example, if you go to Mount Auburn in uh, Massachusetts, the entryway there, that is uh, a Egyptian revival. But we have a lot of, we had a lot of Egyptian revival architecture in New York, the Croton Aqueduct Reservoir on 42nd Street, the tombs downtown on uh, uh, Center Street, no longer with us, Egyptian revival. And of course, in terms of Egyptian revival, we don't think about that, but on the dollar bill. That's all part of it. See, the pyramid. And you'll see that, see. So, so interesting place. And uh, where does the stone come from? come from very Vermont. Very Vermont. One of the things is that a lot of the stone types that are selected are based upon trends. What people were building downtown, what was the fashionable color at the time, as well as certain vendors or architects. They were hooked into this quarry. So Farrington, Gould & Hoagland is the monument firm. You'll see their work across the street at Gates, Woolworth, etc. They always get Barry Granite. Everything they build is always done out of the same stone. So an exciting place. If you ever get up there, go on a tour. You have a good time. And the cemetery there is crazy because all the monument makers decide to do their own custom things. So the cemetery has got some oh, of the most <laughs> fabulous, distinct, and unique memorials you'll ever see. Sydney. The original in uh, in Egypt yeah. was that uh, of limestone. Uh, uh, the original uh, was limestone, the Makatam limestone, which forty million years old. Mm -hmm. Now, oh, I, I I I'm glad you you said something because I said there was that this is exact reproduction except for one thing that's there but not here. And guess what? It was the most studied part of the original monument is graffiti. There is graffiti going back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, that people actually, people who came, it was a great place to visit. They left cards, initials, everything. And people have studied this year after year, trying to figure out who who left their, their, their mark. So it's all full of, uh, of graffiti. 
but um, fortunately there's none here. <laughs> You've heard of the Juilliard School. We next stopped at Juilliard's mausoleum. So here, this is a pink granite from North Carolina. Um, you can see that it's a little coarser than what we've been seeing. The minerals really stand out, the black mineral. Uh, the two black minerals in granite, one is biotite mica, and the other one is hornblende. And, uh, and the, de- the, de- the darker the, the granite, the, uh, the more hornblende and biotite mica there is. Now, one of the interesting things uh, about, about uh, the various Greek and Roman architecture is here. So, Ionic, Corinthian, and Doric are the three main ones, okay? Um, Tuscan is stripped down, stripped down uh, Doric. So, the Romans and the Greeks actually used things from nature to signify uh, to make their designs. So, for example, the volutes, the eyes and the ionic. Those are, if you take a snail, many snails, and you cut it open, slice it in half, you'll see the, the curve of it. And, uh, and so, but ha- what happened was, an interesting thing, Vitruvius, who first documented all of the various Roman and Greek uh, motifs in architecture, said anthropomorphized uh, many of the architectural elements. And so he said, Corinthian columns represent God. And uh, Ionic columns are feminine. And Doric columns are masculine. And And so many of the mausoleums have a ionic entrance because it's feminine and so you're re-entering the womb see and then of course uh, the uh, the uh, volutes actually represents curls of hair pubic hair see so they've extended this and since all architects studied Vitruvius in the past and all to get all the design elements they have carried that forward and so it's an interesting aspect of all of uh, the architectural and it, and the meaning of some of these things. Here's the resting place of playwright Clyde Fitch. It is 140 pieces of marble. But there was someone on a tour who loves Clyde Fitch plays. Has anyone ever seen a Clyde Fitch play? Anyway, there's one guy out there who loves him and donated $30,000 for us to restore this wonderful piece. On our list, it's called Knoxville Gray, but Sid will be able to give you a little bit more understanding about this Tennessee marble. Tennessee marble uh, is formed in, uh, during the Ordovician period. Uh, it's the same age as the Inwood marble. So during the beginning, before the Appalachian Mountains existed, there was this interior seaway that extended from Vermont, Vermont marble, all the way through New York and all the way down to Alabama. And in that sea was deposited lime. Remember that limestone, and which this is limestone, uh, is a uh, forms only in tropical and subtropical seas. And so whenever you see, if you see limestone or marble in Vermont, you know that that originally formed 
in a tr subtropical or tropical sea in the past. And, uh, and of course, in North America was really south of the equator for a very long time, uh, or even equatorial. So, and then because it's a, it's a sea and different environments in that sea, there are different, different types of limestone that's formed. And so Knoxville was the marble capital of the world. Knoxville has many, many different types of, uh, of uh, limestone uh, that are called Tennessee marble. Uh, but it's, as, as we know now, it's really a limestone, not a, geologically, not a, a, a marble um, geologically. And uh, so there's deep cedar red, uh, um, Knoxville fleury, uh, all different different types of uh, limestone in this vast uh, quarry district around Knoxville. And uh, you can see, and if you want to see it elsewhere, the floor of Grand Central is is uh, uh, um, pink Tennessee, and the and the uh, lions in front of the New York Public Library is another uh, ten not marble uh, limestone from. Um, Tennessee, also. So it's a, it stands up very well. Uh, these are all fragments of fossils in here, which are hard to see, because there's been a little alteration uh, uh, in, in the rock, and uh, and so, but they're all little tiny fragments of it. In some places, it's better than others, and so you can see that. Other places, you can see the fossils more clearly. Um, of course, if you go to Grand Central and get down on your hands and knees and look at the at the floor, they may not think you are too uh, too cool there. But anyway, another thing we should uh, mention is the sarcophagus. See, usually the people are not buried in there; they're underneath. But it's so symbolic, and 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 the interesting thing about that is the word sarcophagus. Sarco, you know what sarco means? Flesh, and phagus means eat. So. The, the sarcophagus was a place where flesh was eaten, and and but why? I mean, why would that happen? Well, the original sarcophagi were made of a kind of sandstone that was very caustic, and the name stuck, so it has no relationship to the present time, and there was that peculiar sandstone that did that originally. And that's why, and it continues. So it's a misnomer today. One of the things that happens at Woodlawn is the price of the lots. If you're Cornelius Bliss on the corner there, you paid a little bit more because you were on the intersection of the roads. You're really in the star situation. His daughter gives us the Museum of Modern Art. His grandson gives us Texaco and the opera on the radio. So the Bliss family's good. Anyway... So circular lots were more expensive, crossroads were more expensive, but what was surprising to me is if you bought a rock outcropping, that, that cost even more. You would think it would be cheaper because you can't bury where the rock is, but because you had the opportunity to do a fabulous design, you paid more. Reason constables wanted here, for them it wasn't the monument that was the memorial, but the landscape. They get the Olmstead brothers to do their landscaping. Where along here, many of these families brought their own landscape designer. So it was an ideal spot. Now, why is there a rock outcropping? I don't know. <laughs> well, because the bedrock came to the surface. 
here. Uh, and which reminds us that the that Woodlawn it straddles sort of the top of the Bronx, and uh, and there is and the, the the bedrock is not too far below the surface, covered by glacial deposits. Um, and lots of boulders. Probably if you dig down, you will find a lot of them. But it's on the top, uh, straddles the top. And so back there, there's a, a, a small ridge. And that is the continental divide of, of, of the Bronx. And what that means is that it's a drainage divide. And for, on this side, all of the streams that used to exist here flowed down eventually into the Hudson River. On the other side, where did they go? Into the Bronx River. See, so, and that goes into the East River. So this is, so, so this is an interesting place from that point of view. Now the bedrock itself is the Fordham Nice, which is the oldest rock in, in New York City. It's 1.1 billion years old. Nice is a type of metamorphic rock. And, um, and, and a lot of the Bronx is made of it. That's why we talk about the Bronx being nice, like Woodlawn being nice, and that Manhattan is full of schist. Now this one I know is pink marble and not granite. And it's, it's Knoxville pink mar uh, marble, which is actually a limestone. Uh, you very clearly can see the layers uh, in the uh, in the limestone, it was the actually layers, but it has another feature, and these are called stylolites. See, it's this zigzag feature that you see in here. It looks like a seismogram record, you know. Mm -hmm. And what they are is that when this limestone was laid down in layers, um, there was a lot of pressure on it, and there was, as a result of that pressure, there was dissolving away of some of the of the calcite, the mineral that limestone is made of, and then redeposited um, later in other parts of the rock. That's what gives the rock its stability and its strength. And the stylites so are solution features. And they're black because in every rock is not pure. It's not pure calcite. There's other minerals in it. And they're clay minerals. And so as the calcite is dissolved away, it leaves a residue of clay. And it gets concentrated along the lines where the dissolving is taking place. And so that, the, uh, so that, that we know this is limestone. Because if it's metamorphosed and becomes geologic marble, the stylites are destroyed during the recrystallization of the rock. you'll see just all of a sudden a ton of obelisks everywhere. You get to show off that you're rich, you get to have this big monument, but you still want to be in the ground, and that's why. <coughs> also, when Sid and I were practicing, we were like, are those identical? Are they different? Are they? There's always a little bit of difference. We did not let you be identical to your next door neighbor. You had to present the image to us beforehand. We'd look at your design and make sure that it was appropriate for the lot appropriate for the neighborhood and wasn't identical to who was around you because this whole overall look was extremely important to us. Also somebody's asked do we give tours? Yes, Woodlawn gives regular tours. One weekend it's jazz, one weekend it's theater, one weekend it'll be art and architecture, sometimes it's specifically sculpture. 
Um, last weekend, it was the Pichirilli brothers, the six brothers from the Bronx who carved the Lincoln Memorial. They also carved that little pink angel across the street. They did that for Daniel Chester French, the guy who did the Lincoln Memorial. We've got lots of custom sculpture out here, but of course, those six brothers from the Bronx were the guys who carved everything. I can find their monuments like that because now I know what Tennessee pink is, and they always carve in Tennessee pink. It's their preferred stone type, and so it's real easy to pick out a Pichirilli. One of Sid's favorites is this one. Foster is Foster's Fasteners. He made snaps for gloves. All you got to do is come up with that one thing everybody needs, and you're a multimillionaire after that. What tickles me about the monument, it was done in 1895, is on this side you see this very flashy signature, and I always think of you know when you're a little kid and you start out in school and you're first learning yeah. cursive writing yeah. and if you go on the other side you see his wife's Bertha signature Bertha <laughs> Foster had the flair in this yeah. but it's got so much stone going on I want Sid to tell you about what well, he's discovered about well, Foster I, first of all it's an interesting um, well, structure because it's a actually a sarcophagus with a canopy over it a tent but the tent happens to be in stone you know, and the uh, and the granite is very uh, distinctive, as you can see, uh, pretty much not with any blemishes. We're going to talk about that uh, in another place. Some some granites have blemishes in it, but you can see up here uh, the white material, and look at it on the column over here. You can see it coming down, and that is called efflorescence. So we have a structure that is now um, has water infiltration. And what it's doing is the water is infiltrating into the, the joint system and dissolving out the mortar. And uh, then when it comes out on the surface, the water evaporates and then deposits the uh, mortar on the, the lime on the surface of the stone. It's not a good thing. Uh, because it's disappearing. I mean, that's why the West Side Highway collapsed for the same reason. Because the, uh, all the concrete was being dissolved away and they had tremendous stalactites forming. And so flowstone, which is, the, which that is called, is, uh, is very similar to stalactites. Stalactites come down from the ceiling. This comes down on the side of the wall. But it's the same process that forms not only uh, in buildings and structures, but also in, uh, in uh, caves. Well, while we're here, uh, Susan mentioned the obelisks. So here is a, a, an obelisk that was just finished in the quarry. Put on, it's going to be put on a railroad and carried to, uh, to uh, Woodlawn. See? Wow. See that? Okay. And of course, the obelisk becomes really popular when two things happen. Washington Monument gets finished, Cleopatra's Needle, good enough for Central Park, good enough for Woodlawn. And that's when we see this flurry of obelisks all over the place. Wow. And the obelisk, you know what the obelisk represents? Yes. It represents a ray of sunlight. And then, of course, the Egyptian obelisks uh, always had a gold uh, cover at the pyramid at the top to catch the rays of sun and be transported down. But it's a ray of sunlight. Our next stop was at the tomb of naval architect William Webb. Made an extraordinary fortune building ships, the fastest ships, 
from clipper ships to early steamships, etc., leaves his entire estate to create the Webb School of Naval Architecture. But Carrara marble from Italy, which Michelangelo carves David in, a lot of our interior works, although some of the art outside works have this very soft white marble. And so Carrara marble comes from Mount Altissimo. And uh, this is over 5,000 feet high, slowly disappearing. Um, it's a real, when the trucks come down the roads, it's, um, you get out of the way. <laughs> and it's a, a phenomenal uh, place to see. But just keep in mind that this, is, this marble is called statuary marble. And uh, statuary marble is pure marble. Uh, there's no veins in it. There's no imperfections. And that's very rare. And they're finding less and less of it in Carrara. But also keep in mind that the cheapest marble, it's called Italian gray marble, comes from Carrara also. So, it's, uh, so it has a cachet to it, but, don't, um, it's, um, but it's not... Um, uh, it, it, various kinds of marble... Uh, that are located there. And it is true marble. It's not limestone. A lot of the new monuments we have, some of you have asked about the jazz section. In the jazz section, you'll see some really big black monuments. The new technique of putting your picture on them is to computer scan and then sandblast so that, you know, you can be Illinois Jacquette with a nine-foot statue of you playing the saxophone. But to do this, you, you need to use a dark color granite. It won't work on a light granite. And most of this stuff comes from India today. But back in the old days, it didn't come from India. We wanted to stop here to show you some of the distinct darker granites that you'll see. This is William Buckingham Curtis, the founder of the New York Athletic Club. This is a, this is, the stone is dark Quincy granite. Uh, Quincy granite was a large uh, quarry area uh, just south of Boston and had very varieties of different stones. And the, uh, the, mo the one that was the most desirable and the most expensive was Dark Quincy. And, um, and it had a problem. Uh, you can see that um, some of the feldspars are turning to clay. It's called a process called kaolinization. And like kaopectite, mm -hmm. kaolin, same, same thing. And so that's what happens to the feldspar minerals. But, but it really went into a tremendous decline when they discovered that they were doctoring the stone. They were taking oil and carbon and rubbing it into the stone to get it dark. And eventually what happens, it starts to wear away. And then when that was discovered, that they were doing that, and you know, it got lighter, it got splotchy. Uh, no one would allow Quincy granite uh, to be used, uh, dark Quincy granite to be used anymore, and uh, so it went into the quarries basically closed up as a result of that. This happened in the, in the 1930s when they were desperate to get more business. And uh, today you can go to Quincy and see many of the old quarries. Uh, many buildings in New York City are made of uh, Quincy granite. The first uh, commercial railroad in the United States was built to take Quincy granite from from the quarries uh, to Boston to build the Bunker Monu Hill Monument, 1821. So you have a whole, a whole bunch of, this is a new granite from New Hampshire. 
Uh, some of you may have re uh, seen uh, the film uh, The Fountainhead, uh, and uh, they worked in the Fletcher Quarry. That's the stone here. New England is just so richly endowed with, uh, with so many varieties of granite, different colors, different textures. And the thing to remember about granite, it is a rock that forms six, eight, ten miles below the surface of the earth. And that's where it cools, and that's where it crystallizes. And so when you see granite, where you can quarry it on the surface, this means that the, the, the crust of the earth has risen upward, and all of the overlying rocks stripped away by erosion over millions of years to expose that granite. So it's really, anytime you see the granite anywhere in the world, it's a testimony to the dynamism of the earth. But one of the things I want you to notice is, uh, for example, in that column there, about uh, halfway up, a little less than that, you see a black mark. You see it? And then up there, and then over here, uh, they're, they're all around. And, w and these are called xenoliths. Xeno, X-E-N-O. Xeno means foreign, like xenophobia. Mm -hmm. So xeno, foreign rock. And what this is, remember that this is molten rock. And so as it's forming in this chamber, it's reacting with the sides of the huge chamber. You, you're talking about huge uh, uh, massive material. Pieces of the sides fall into the molten material. And they get dissolved usually, but sometimes they don't. And they remain. And, and, uh, and they don't get completely dissolved away. And so those are the xenoliths. So these are part of the chamber walls that have fallen in and still remain. And that's why they call xenolith. They're far into the molten material itself. We continued on to the Harkness Memorial Garden. And notice that the, uh, the stone that's used in the actual structure sort of matches the bedrock. The bedrock is the Fort of Nice. And you can see the layers all running uh, in the direction of my hand here, going this way. But the stone itself is unrelated to it. It is not nice metamorphic rock. It's actually uh, a dolomite. Now, dolomite is somewhat related to limestone. The basic composition of limestone is calcium carbonate, the mineral calcite. And, but however, uh, magnesium easily substitutes for calcium. So you, when you have a calcium-magnesium carbonate, you have now the mineral dolomite, and, uh, which is what that is. But it also has, in addition, iron oxides. And the iron oxides is what gives it the various shades of brown uh, to tan. And so it's still quarried today. A lot of it is used for flooring. Um, it's uh, very durable uh, because it's not soft like calcite. It's dolomite. And, uh, and so it ha but it has a lot of holes in it because of the way it was deposited. Okay, let's yeah. thank Sid. Let's thank Susan. Let's thank Susan.
For more info, Google Friends of Woodlawn Cemetery and check out Sid Hornstein's books, including A Geologist Looks at Manhattan, Rocks Tell Stories, and with co-author renowned evolutionary biologist Niles Eldritch, Concrete Jungle, New York City and Our Last Best Hope for a Sustainable Future. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can hear a 60-second science podcast about the tiny insect that pollinates cacao trees, without which, no Halloween chocolate. Ah! And you'll follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 